school. We are in school season, right? It's just around the corner. Some started uh, just a few days ago. And so I'm, I'm asking you to think back of your school days, more specifically those days when you're sitting there on the school bus, and, and think back. The wheels on the bus go round and round and the wheels on the bus go all through. <laughs> you see, when we sing, we identify with the song that we sing. We identify to, we identify the song that we sing. We identify with the people we sing and we identify to something, right? So we get a picture of this and what Deej just read for us in Acts chapter 16. So if you're not there, um, if you'll take a moment to turn to Acts chapter 16. As we've been working our way this summer through the series, When Scripture Shapes Our Singing, today we have a historical example of how Scripture shapes our singing. And before we get to the singing portion of this passage, we just have to wade through some of the historical aspects, some of the groundwork. And that starts in verse 6 of chapter 16. So verse 6, look with me. It says, and they, now they is Paul, it's Silas, uh, Timothy's with them too, but Paul and Silas, right? So and they, Paul and Silas, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Where did they intend to go first? It wasn't this Phrygia and Galatia. What was it? They were forbidden to go into Asia. So Asia was plan A, and this Phrygia and Galatia was plan B. Let's look at verse 7. Keep reading. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Plan A turns into plan B. They try to go into Bithynia. That's their plan C. But note that language in verse 6 and 7. It's powerful language. It's strong language. It says the, the Holy Spirit had forbidden them. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to press on. Is, does our theology leave enough room for a God that big? That de despite my best intentions, despite even my good intentions, even my godly intentions, that the the king can still forbid. That the sovereign God still has the prerogative to forbid even my good or my godly intentions. Well, Paul and his comrades had enough room for that. And they're, they're currently on plan C. Well, let's go to verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So they didn't even make it to Plan C, they're in Troas, which is plan, plan letter D. D, as in dog. And that's where we pick it up in verse 9. And a vision appeared 
to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the word to them. Finally, plan E is what actually wins out. Sometimes that's just the way it works, isn't it? That we think we have the perfect plan. We think we have the bulletproof plan. Students, if you're about to start school, you got your plan for the school year, maybe. But it doesn't shape up like we think it will, right? Despite our earnest efforts, even our godly desires, sometimes God just says no. How many of us can relate? But how does Paul respond? It's pretty clear, isn't it? He believes that God's providence, that God's plan, that God's purpose is better than anything that he can concoct on his own. It's better than Asia, it's better than Bithynia, and all those other places. You see, Paul and Silas, they rest in, they trust, and they obey God's call. Verse 11 is where we pick it up. So what do they do? So setting sail from Troas, we. Now notice that word change. The author Luke has apparently joined Paul and Silas. So we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So they, they go to Macedonia. They follow God's call into Macedonia, and this is where they are. And not a Macedonia as a whole, but more specifically, they're in the city of Philippi. They're in the city of Philippi. Now, the story picks up in verse 12. We don't have time to read it today, but you'll see that in Philippi, in verse 12 through 15, there's, there's a lady by the name of Lydia, and Lydia and her whole household come to faith in God. And I can just imagine Paul and Silas just so grateful that God led them to Philippi so that Lydia and her whole household could come to faith in Christ. God is going to build his church. He's going to move forward. And here we see the church is birthed on the continent of Europe. So that's where we pick up here in 16. This is where it starts this is where it really starts to shape up for us. Let's look, read in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a, a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, 
turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. You see how powerful our God is? Right? And, and, and Paul helps her in such a material way by casting this spirit out of her. And how people must have marveled at that. Wow, that very hour. How many people marveled? But not everyone marveled, did they? You see, in doing so, by casting that spirit out of her, Paul was directly attacking the pocketbook, the piggy bank of her owners. They had it pretty good. You know, they're parading her around and people are paying and they're patting their pockets. But by casting that spirit out, what? They get angry. They lost their way of gain. Despite the fact that Paul was following God's plan, they get angry. And we pick it up in verse 19. As we read, take note of the violent language that the author uses. Verse 19, but her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pause there. That last sentence, it mentions the inner prison, probably the center of the prison, the coldest, the darkest, the the dankest, if that's a word, the dankest, where probably the most spiders are scurrying around, and maybe the most rats are, are running over them, the most creepy crawlies, maybe the most moist. It's, this is the worst part of the prison, the inner prison. And it also mentions, at the end there, stocks, right? Stocks, these things called stocks. If uh, the fair, or if you know you go to the spring house, or you go to those places where you stick your head through and you put your hands through, right? It's kind of like those, but these stocks are kind of like handcuffs for the feet. They're these these pieces of wood on the ground, and you fasten your ankles in them. But they're not only handcuffs to fasten, as as Paul and Silas's and bloodied bodies were laying down on the ground. But in all likelihood, this is more a torture device where their feet aren't just like this, but like this. And so the searing pain of the beats and the welts and the blood 
and their legs stretched out more than they can bear. That's what's going on for Paul and Silas in this moment. And in that, the Bible tells us how they respond. But let me ask you before we, we get there, how would I respond? As I sit there with my feet in those stocks spread out like this, and as I feel the, the many blows and the attacks and the garments that were torn off, how would you respond? What would you be thinking? What would you be doing? What would we be feeling? Pain, suffering, torture brought on because I did something good, and not only because I did something good, but because I was doing what God called me to do. How could something so terrible happen when I was literally acting in obedience to God? That's what got me into this mess. Maybe some of us would think, God, this whole Macedonia, this wasn't my plan in the first place. <laughs> I wanted to go over there. If you'd only listen to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. I told you we should have gone to Asia. Probably be dead in only a few hours. Can you feel the questions? Can you imagine that? What's, as, as you lay there in the pain, and it only gets worse. The story picks up in, at midnight. It tells us it's midnight, the darkest hour of the night. And in this darkest hour, in the, the pain, in the torture, in the questions, God's protecting hand seems to have failed. What's going through our minds in that place? Well, the Bible tells us what Paul and Silas were thinking about and what they were doing. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were, they were praying and they were singing to God. As, as one commentator writes, though their bodies were still bleeding and tortured in the stocks, their spirits under the expulsive power of a new affection, catch this, rose above the suffering and made the prison walls resound with their song. They sang. begs the question, what on earth compels someone in such a state, in such circumstances, in such a place to sing? What would compel someone to sing in that in the In the depths of prison in such pain? Well, four things seem to be clear. From this. First, what would compel? One, Paul and Silas were resting in the providence of their God 
because they obeyed his call. They knew that beyond the shadow of a doubt, God had called them to Macedonia and that God would provide, whether by life or by death, their current state, or excuse me, God's state did not depend on their state. That God was still seated above on the throne. And they're resting in that. Two. About ten years after this, Paul writes a letter to these folks, to the church in Philippi. We have that letter today. It's called the Book of Philippians, is what we call it. And to that question, what would compel someone to sing? Listen to what Paul writes. This is this is Philippians chapter 1. Listen to these words. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is Paul and Silas's trust is complete and total in God. That he's greater and better and eternal compared with their current state. And that is, this world can do nothing for them. And so they sing out with full courage that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so Paul sings and honors his king. Third, in their singing, Paul and Silas, no doubt, are, are preaching to themselves the truths of the word of God, the truths of who God is. Last week, Zeb um, challenged us, and he said, when we don't feel like we can sing, and when we don't want to sing, are often the times that we just need to sing the most, isn't it? Um, I, I've heard it said, do you sing because you're happy? Well, absolutely, I sing when I'm happy. But if you flip it around, where are you happy because you sing? Sometimes when I don't want to sing, that's when I need to sing. Reach to myself the truths of the scripture. And Paul and Silas, from a human perspective, they weren't happy, but they do just that. They sing, and the joy of the Lord, they're preaching to themselves. It's permeating their minds, and it's permeating their hearts. Right? It's, just, it's just eking into them, despite their circumstance. You know, all of us, have been in one of those difficult, life-altering situations or circumstances where maybe you're, you're driving down the road late one night all alone and you're trying to wrap your mind around this hard thing in life and you have that worship music turned on in the background and you just start to sing. And some of you, if you're like me, you just gradually get louder and louder and louder. <laughs> Um, others, one way or the other, we're just pouring out our hearts to God. Have you been in one of these places? 
whether you're in the back room or whether you're in the car. Last week and in the week prior, we heard from the Gottschalks on how they had that, that song that the Lord helped to use to sustain them through. To share an example of one of these from my own life, some of you here may remember the story um, of, of Nicholas Coomer, who for many years, Nicholas and I, hardly a day went by when we wouldn't see each other, church, sports, school. And um, three years ago this month, Nicholas was, was killed in the Dayton mass shooting while shielding others from the bullets. Today would have... <laughs> Today would have been his 29th birthday. I remember when I got that call. I was in Altoona at the time. And, and that day I, I went off into the woods. Other times I found my, myself in the back room with songs playing. And I could not help but to sing. Because sometimes I don't have words. I don't have words, but I have those songs that I've been singing for my life. And so I just couldn't help but to sing. And as I was pouring out my heart to God, I was preaching the joy of the Lord as my strength to my own soul. Many of you know exactly the type of situation that I'm in. Paul and Silas' singing sustained them through the difficulty. And so it is with us today. And fourth, Paul and Silas could sing because they had peace. Listen to these words that Paul writes. Again, in the book of Philippians, he writes it to this very church. Just listen to these the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which, what? Surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6. Makes you wonder when the Philippians got this letter 10 years later, if they must have been thinking, wow, Paul, wow, we remember when you were in prison and you had that peace that passes all understanding. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds because of God's peace. They could sing. They could overwhelm their current circumstances, even their, their human thoughts with the glories of God. Through song. All right, back to the text. In verse 25, something else happened when they sang. Verse 25, it says, And the prisoners were listening to them. Not only are Paul and Silas 
singing. But there's a, a, a byproduct. The prisoners, the liars, the cheats, the murderers, the rapists, the thieves, they were listening. Now, the text doesn't say anything about jeers or curses or it's midnight, I'm trying to sleep, so be quiet. But it's probably not out of the ordinary. Nonetheless, what does it say? The prisoners listen. There's something so incredibly different about this Paul and this Silas because you're not supposed to sing in places like this. You don't sing when you're tortured. You don't sing when you're sitting in a dungeon. Unless, of course, you have that peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Again, as that commentator wrote, they, Paul and Silas, rose above suffering and they made the prison walls resound with their song. He goes on. In these midnight hymns, the imprisoned witnesses for Jesus set forth more completely the majesty and the spiritual power of the church, which as yet the world knew nothing of. The result of their singing is also a radical witness for Jesus Christ. When we sing, we display the majesty and the spiritual power of Christ himself and of his church. And of his church. I'd like to share another story, another prison singing story. And this is in most of our lifetimes, about 20 years ago, is when this story takes place from the book, The Insanity of God, which I highly recommend. If you want to borrow my copy, you're welcome to. Just know you'll need probably two or three boxes of tissues if you're going to try to make your way through this thing. Um, but it comes from this. So to set up the story, we are in a large Islamic country, and there are some Western Christians who've set up a medical clinic here in the country. Every day, for years, they're walking into that medical clinic to, to serve. And there's a neighbor, a shop owner, whose name we call Mohammed. And every day as they walk by, he curses them. He talks bad to the neighbors about them. He calls the evil infidels are going in again today. Year after year, day after day. Well... <laughs> You know what happens at the end of his life? He gets sick. And you know who takes care of him? Those evil infidels end up taking care of him. Time goes on. Right at the end of his life, Mohammed comes to a saving faith in Christ. And not only him, but his young wife comes to a knowledge of Christ. And she becomes an undeniable witness for Jesus. So much so that even though her country had no history of putting women in prison, you know what they did? They arrested her. All right, that's where our story picks up. Her. Her name um, is, according to this, Aisha. Aisha's captors threw her not into an actual jail cell, 
but down into the dank, dark, unfinished, oh, that sounds familiar, cellar of the police station. In that place, there is no light at all. The unfinished cellar had a dirt floor. Spiders, bugs, and rats skittered around her in the darkness. Terrified and at the point of giving up, she told us that she intended to scream out to God that she couldn't take any more. But when she opened her mouth in protest and despair, a melody of praise rose out of her soul instead. She sang surprised and strengthened by the sound of her own voice and overwhelmed by the renewed sense of God's presence beside and within her, she began to sing her praise and worship to Jesus even more loudly. And as she sang, she noticed that office by office, the police station above her head became strangely silent. Later that night, the trap door was opened, and light spilled down into the darkness of the cellar. The chief of police himself reached down and pulled Aisha out, and he told her, I'm going to release you and let you go home. Please, no, she protested. You can't do that because it's after midnight. That sounds familiar. I can't be seen on the streets alone. He, of course, knew that it was against the law for a woman to be out alone at night. So she wondered if this might be a trick to get her into even more trouble. You don't understand, the chief told her. There's no need to worry. I'm going to escort you home personally on one condition. Aisha immediately suspected the man's intentions. But it turns out that he had nothing sinister in mind. The chief of police, one of the most powerful men in the city, looked at the 24-year-old girl, shook his head in bewilderment, and said, I don't understand. You're not afraid of anything. My wife, my daughters, and all of the women in my family are afraid of everything. But you are not afraid of anything. So now I'm going to take you safely to your home tonight. Three days from now, I'm going to come to get you and bring you to my house. I want you to come to my house so you can tell everyone in my family why you are not afraid. And I want you to sing that song. When sing, we are a witness for Jesus. She's probably in her mid-40s today. This is in our day. Our singing, like Aisha, like Paul, like Silas, our singing keeps us focused on Christ himself. It anchors us into him. It overwhelms our current circumstances. It's a radical witness for Jesus. And like these stories, the world kind of overwhelmed because there's something different about those people. When we sing, we display the glory of God. And during the perspectives class, we're going to talk about folks like Aisha um, on, a, on a regular basis. Just again, an encouragement, if you're able, I know times and seasons, we all have seasons of life, and it's the wrong season um, for, 
for some. But if you're able, just last week, actually, a lady who is here visiting from the North Hills of Pittsburgh beelined it to me right after service, and she said, I'm, I'm praying for this perspectives class. When I heard you guys were doing it today, I was so thrilled because in 1999, when I was 50 years old, I took it, and God used that to change the trajectory of my life. I found myself, believe it or not, in northern Iran not long after that. Um, so some random person in, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh is praying for you all, is, is praying for you all. Um, anyhow, back to the scripture, verse 26. As they're singing, as the, as the prisoners are listening, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were opened. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The jailer knows if they're gone, his life will be required of him. It's better for him just to end it right there. Now, now let's think back. Verse 24. Who chose to put Paul and Silas into the inner prison? Not just into the jail, but into the inner jail. It was the jailer. Now, we can't know for certain that this was that guy, but at the very least, he's associated with them. And he's about to run himself through. He's about to, to kill himself. When in verse 28, it says, But Paul cried with a loud voice. He knew that the guy, that the jailer, had to hear him. He cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul's saying, I, I care for you. I care for you. He has no us versus them mentality. He doesn't have a, a those people in his vocabulary. Paul's saying, I don't care. I too am a sinner saved by grace. And so Paul calls out once more as loudly so that perhaps one more can be saved. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and with trembling, with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He fell with trembling and fear, he fell down. That sure sounds reminiscent of Philippians 2, doesn't it? To work out your salvation with treat, fear, and with trembling. Sure sounds reminiscent. God is at work. He called them to Macedonia. And God will carry out his plan and his purpose and will build his church. And the jailer asks just the right question. He asks the right question. What must I do to be saved? He asks. Verse 31. 
Paul and Silas said, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Friends, some of you today may not know that way of salvation, may not have an understanding of, of what that means, the way to be saved. Be saved from sin, be saved from a place called hell and punishment for that sin, to be saved to that peace that passes all understanding. Some, you may have never felt that peace, and, and you're bringing it might just not compute. It might just not make sense that you can sing your way through such difficult circumstances. If that's you this morning, Paul and Silas's words are as true today as they were those nearly 2,000 years ago. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe that God himself, that Jesus came and died on the cross, and he beat death when he came back to life and rose in victory. And Paul and Silas say, believe on that Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If that's you, after the service, the elders will be up front. Don't leave without, at the very least, just starting a conversation. I don't get it. I don't get it. This, this piece doesn't make sense. I don't get it. Just start a conversation. Just start a conversation. Verse 33 and verse 34. And he took them the same hour of that night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. God was going to build his church. And so the jailer comes to faith in Christ. And so his whole household comes to faith in Christ. Now, we have to leave the story there. We don't have time to, to read of the great escape, but it's a beautiful account. Go home and, and read it on how God pulls them out of prison. Um, it's, a, it's really interesting. You can learn a lot about the strategy of Paul in those verses. So go and, and read it on your own time. But um, if you'll take a moment, flip to Philippians chapter two short verses. Philippians chapter 1. We're starting in verse 29. Paul writes, again, he's writing to the Philippians. The jailer is probably hearing these words 10 years later. His family are probably hearing these exact words 10 years later. And you know what's probably in their mind of those times when Paul was with them and those things that Paul went through? 
Let's read it. For it has been granted to you, church, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. That same conflict, that same suffering, that same, those same barriers to the gospel. And that jailer, to see, I, I can just imagine him seeing Paul and Silas in those stocks when he hears those words, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Friends, an application, two thoughts. One is, if you don't have one of those songs, if you don't have one of those songs that you can just keep in the, the depths of your heart, when uh, we were singing 10,000 Reasons a few minutes ago, that last verse, and on that day when my strength is failing, there's a perfect example of one. So if you don't have one, get one. Find one. Sing it on your way to church. Etch it in your mind. Etch it in your heart. Etch it in your family's heart and mind to, to sing certain songs. Because that suffering does come. To sing those songs. And two, you might be saying, well, Benjo, I don't, I'm not in prison. I'm not in the Middle East. How can my singing be a witness? How can my singing be a witness? To which, i like to tell you another story about one of my dearest mentors. Uh, his name was Dr. McKenzie, and ironically, today would have been his 98th birthday, a uh, popular day, and Dr. McKenzie was the president of Grove City College for a long chunk of time. Now, when he became the president, he, he was given the, the task to kind of bring back a school to its Christian roots, right? So many schools had strong Christian roots, and you know what I mean? So many things just drift away. And at the time, Grove City was nearly indistinguishable from secular institutions. Bit tall order, especially given... Um, what was going on in the 1970s in, in the States. Well, Dr. McKenzie grew up in Boston. At five years old, he had to start working to support, help support his family. His dad was an abusive alcoholic. One day, he was walking down the streets of Boston as a dejected young man when he heard something. He realized he was standing in front of a church. It wasn't the, the preaching he heard. It wasn't the excitement of fellowship he heard. It was the music. And he was drawn into that church. He walked into that church that one day because of the music. And that very day... Dr. McKenzie heard the gospel, and he became a follower of Christ. 
By God's grace and, and through his work and many others, Grove City, unlike so many other colleges, actually found its way back to strong Christian roots. Since then, tens of thousands, really, of young Christian people have been disseminated all across this globe to pursue their God-given callings. Any here? I know there's at least a couple. How many of us have been disseminated from Grove City? Um, how many of us have gone to Grove City at one point or another? Right. There's at least, what, five, six, seven here in this room have been impacted by Dr. McKenzie's work through Grove City. Gospel Truth Today is penetrating all 50 states of America and over three dozen countries on this globe. Because one day, a church in Boston, Massachusetts sang. I am so grateful, Friendship Community Church, I am so grateful for that nameless church in Boston that, that sang that day. Our singing, our music is so important. And when we here in this room sing together in unity, we are a radical witness to our world for Jesus. May we be that witness that Christ is worth it. Let's, let's pray and then let's sing. Lord, will you teach us? Lord, will you etch in our hearts and in our minds the truths of Scripture through song, as we've seen in the life of Paul and Silas, that they will carry us through life. And Lord, that we will be a witness for Jesus when we open up our mouths and sing tunes worthy of you. In Christ's name we pray.